would say that you're pretty familiar with this psalm. You've heard it somewhat repetitively. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, it's a pretty familiar psalm uh, to our ears. In fact, those words, they, they kind of cause our ears to listen in because we've heard that psalm before. And also the fact that it's really quite a poetic first two verses uh, to start the psalm. And um, anybody like the mountains? Anybody? Yeah, most of you like the mountains. Um, if not, I understand why you live in Florida. Um, and you, you, we're, we're here sing, singing the song that, you know, I will call on him when I'm, when I'm in the mountain or when I'm on the mountain and we're in the flatlands of Florida. You have to take a 30-minute drive to Claremont to get to the highest point of central Florida. And they have neighborhoods there called Sky Ridge in Claremont. So... Um, we uh, in Florida really don't know the beauty of the ups and downs of our geographic location. When uh, Carrie and I were uh, engaged to be married, uh, there was one argument that I could remember really clearly. And uh, we didn't argue about very much, but this was worth fighting about, is where are we going on our honeymoon? Um, for me, I wanted to go to the mountains. I mean, I was thinking about hiking up in the hills of North Carolina in the middle of the cool, crisp air of January up there. Or, or maybe it was going snow skiing in Park City, Utah with uh, uh, the fresh powder had just come down and enjoying the beautiful Rocky Mountains. But for Carrie, she was envisioning something a little warmer. Uh, the, the beach side of Grand Cayman with a margarita was in her order. And so uh, we did what every reasonable married couple would do when you can't agree on something, especially before you get married, which is we compromised, both of us. We did mountains and beach. We went to Costa Rica. And in Costa Rica, there is the beauty of the mountains right next to the oceans, um, and in Costa Rica, that small country, there are five different mountain ranges. And we spent, I think, about eight days in Costa Rica. We traveled through three of them. And it was a, a really beautiful place. And when I think about all the mountains that I've been to, I think about several different mountain ranges. The one I'm most familiar with, and, and likely many of you in this room, is the, the Appalachian Mountains, the Great Smoky Mountains. Love going up to the mountains of Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina. Just a, a, a wonderful uh, soul rest for me when I go to the mountains up there. Uh, those Appalachian Mountains stretch into Pennsylvania, and Carrie and her family uh, were from Pennsylvania. And uh, I remember going with them many times to the mountains in Pennsylvania, and the Allegheny Mountains as well in Pennsylvania. Uh, a couple years ago, we made a trip to New northern New York on the shores of Lake George, where the Adirondack Mountains are, in the middle of January. And it was blisteringly cold, but it was also incredibly beautiful. And I also remember uh, going on a mission trip uh, to South America, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where there are the Serra do Mar mountain ranges uh, in, in the beautiful country of Brazil. And last year, we were on a mission trip in Fethiye, Turkey. And across a, a, a lot of Turkey, there's a mountain range called the Taurus Mountain Range. And it's a beautiful desert 
but also on one side lush landscape that just shows us something bigger than ourselves. I think that's why I like the mountains, because it, it causes me to look up. It causes me to see that this world is bigger than me. When I think about the mountains or the hills, and I, and I echo the, the prayer or cry of this psalmist, where does my help come from? It causes me to see my smallness in light of God's bigness. It causes me to see my finiteness in light of an infinite God. The mountains don't point us to themselves. The mountains point us to their maker. Our help doesn't come from the mountains, but our help comes from the mountain maker. If you read Psalm 121, and I encourage you to look at it just real quickly in your Bible, you'll see two words that are, in pre, that are pretty much in repetition. Uh, one word is Lord, capital, all capital, L-O-R-D. The Hebrew translation for that word is Yahweh. Whenever you see the word in capital, L-O-R-D, it's talking the scriptures are talking about Yahweh. He is the creator. He is the author. He is God the Father, the maker and sustainer of all things Yahweh. And then another word that you'll see in repetition is the word keep or keeper, which the Hebrew word for that is the word shamar. It conveys the idea of guardianship. And so if I were to take those two words and give us the big idea for our sermon, which we could do that, is the big idea for the sermon today is Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your keeper. He will hold you fast. So we're going to see Yahweh as our keeper in three ways expressed through the psalmist in verses in chapter 121. We're going to see Yahweh is our keeper when we need help, number one. Number two, we're going to see Yahweh is our keeper when we're traveling through hazards. And number three, Yahweh is our keeper when you need hope. Yahweh is your keeper. Verses one and two. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Uh, the imagery here is really powerful. And if you were uh, a Jew in this time period, you would have known, you would have had an idea of what the psalmist was talking about. Uh, this psalm is also known as the Traveler's Psalm. And as we talk about the Psalms of Ascent, uh, it's an idea that all of Israel is not in one geographic location, but they are scattered throughout the Middle East. They're dispersed. 
And there are these times of festivals where, where they would go and celebrate the goodness, grace, and glory of God. And they would all gather for those festivals. And so they would go from the outer fringes of Palestine and the Middle East, and they would all gather to go ascend up the mountains, to ascend the hill of the Lord. And so when the psalmist asks, where does my help come? He's giving us uh, the reality that, that there is a help to be found in the mountains. And the help to be found in the mountains is which the Jews could identify with, with which was the great assembly, where they would gather on this pilgrimage for the festival of Passover, or tabernacles. And they would sing of God's glory, and as the great assembly gathered, they would be in the presence of God with the people of God in the place that God had prepared in Zion. Now, Mount Zion wasn't an end in itself. It was a pointer to something greater. And the reason why Mount Zion is a pointer to something greater, you and I can understand, is the festivals continued to happen because as they packed their bags and they went home, it was a reminder that they had not yet arrived on their final destination because these festivals or the sacrificial system was a, a, a means of reminding the people of God that your sin, your sin still had to be dealt with. So Mount Zion points to a greater mount. And the mount that Mount Zion points to is Mount Calvary. Christ crucified. And that mount shows us ultimately where our help comes from. Right now we're, we're kind of living in, in between the already and not yet. Yes, Christ has already came. Redemption has already happened. We've already been reconciled. We've already been restored. Because of Christ's sacrifice, there's a finality to sin's Punishment being paid. You don't have to go through that punishment again. Christ will not die again. He died one time for sins. And forgiveness is free and final. But yet, we live in a broken world and we still cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come again. Come again, O Lord. And we cry out for the same help that the psalmist cries out for. Now, when we cry out for that help, you and I should realize that it's really easy to cry out for help from a lot of different places. And the travelers on the road to Jerusalem would have known that there was a competing vision for their help. There was the Mount Zion that represented the fullness of God and His glory and His final work of redemption but it also, there also would have been other mounts that would compete for your help. You see, in ancient Palestine, there were pagan religions that were popularized. And as you're traveling uh, among the roads to Jerusalem, you would have seen almost advertisements or billboards to, to go ahead and get off the exit and, and, and go up a different mountain because there was another God up in that mountain. There's another temple. There was another shrine up in that mountain. 
And in these mountains, they built shrines because it was rumored that it, the closer you were to the heavens, the closer you were to God. And so it was tempting for a weary traveler to seek help somewhere else. It was also tempting for a weary traveler because there were a lot of different dangers that could happen on the roadside, and these false gods were offered false promises of a quick healing or a quick fix to your problem. Or maybe you've struggled with infertility, so you have to go see the fertility God. Or maybe you've struggled with a health ailment, and so you had to see a God for that. Whatever you're liking, there was a God for that. It's kind of like traveling on a weary road, and you see a Café Risqué billboard, and your mind just goes off to wonder, and you think, man, that might be nice. But you know that the help doesn't come from there. It doesn't come from there. That's hazard. That's harm. It's going to hurt you. But somehow you think my help can be immediately met. Your greatest dreams, your greatest fantasies, your greatest hopes are met not in Yahweh, but in a false God or in an idol. So these competing visions for your help or for the help of the Israelites would have been known because of the false gods that were around them. Romans 1, and 23 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As we read uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, it's kind of hard to identify with the idol that he's talking about. How, how could we ever worship a mere image resembling something that's mortal, something that's on this earth. How could we ever worship such a thing? Well, these things offered to, to the worshipers false promises, false hopes, claiming wisdom. And those who believed that they could walk in the path of that wisdom became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because it's foolish to trade the image of the invisible God for that which is mere mortal. For a fish or bird or creeping thing. It was foolish. And in the same way, it would have been foolish for a weary traveler to trade the vision presented to them on Mount Zion for any other form of help. Or hope. And it was this, though, that the people of God were led astray to. And it's this that I believe we're led astray to today. Tim Keller says, what is an idol? He defines it as anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. Now, listen, let's not assume of our own hearts this morning that like God is in the center and we just love him above everything else. I mean, I know you're in church, but can we just drop the pretense and the performance and say, I really struggle in that area? I really struggle to, to, to see that God is in the center of everything that I am and everything that I that I want to be. And I struggle with that. That he is not oftentimes what my mind is consumed with and that my heart or my affections are given to lesser things. That's idolatry. He says it's anything that absorbs your heart. 
and imagination more than God. Absorbs your heart. It's like a sponge that going into water. It's anything that just absolutely captivates your affections. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Help reveals to us not just what we want, but where we turn. Because although we might not go to the mountains in the false shrines of worship, we will worship the mountain of success. We will worship on the mountain of financial security. We will worship on the mountain of self-care. We will worship on the mountain of self-help. We will worship on the mountain of human beauty and wellness. We will worship on the mountain of politics, thinking that if this candidate just gets into office, then he can give me what only God can. When we become so absorbed with something that we can't see God as the mountain maker any longer, but something else has replaced him. And this is the hope or help that causes us to reveal where are we looking? Who do we run to? Where do we ultimately go? An idol doesn't always have to be a bad thing. In fact, many times an idol isn't a bad thing, and this is why we, we get tripped up so easily is because we, we, we worship things that we would consider good. We, we say that we're not idolaters, but we say family first. And I, I'm all about family having its most important places in our lives or our job having uh, the, the place that, that it needs to occupy in our lives because it's important. But the moment that that becomes what's ultimate is the moment we've given our heart to a lesser God. And we've perverted what God ultimately intended for something that's good. That's what idolatry is, is it flips upside down what God made right side up. And this is what Tim Keller warns us about. The, um, we also see, secondarily, that Yahweh is our keeper when we're traveling through hazards. I mentioned earlier that this psalm it was written from a traveler's perspective. Uh, it's often known as the traveler's psalm. And here we see why in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps, you will, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It would have been easier for a traveler on the, on the road to get tripped up. This was the time before uh, medicine and antiseptics. And so even the slightest injury could mean certain death. And so there would have been many hazards on the road that the weary travelers would have had to go through. Verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. When we were in Turkey, we were hiking up the mountains, and we were uh, traveling along some of the ruins. And 
Uh, it was in October in Turkey, which is a lot, actually a little bit cooler than like our October here. Um, but the, it was dry air, and the sun, though, was piercing. And when you're traveling on those roads, you could feel the heat of the sun even in the dryness or cool of the air, and it was bothersome. But as, as soon as you got into a little shade, it was like, ah, shalom, rest. Felt really good. Now, that sun, though, in the Middle East is deadly. It's piercing for the traveler. And the rocky climate and the dust, it all provides certain hazards that you could become dehydrated. You could become heat stroke. You could, be, you could succumb to sunstroke or fatigue. And the day didn't just provide challenges, but the night provided challenges as well. Because in those hills, there were people that wanted to harm you. <laughs> in those hills, there were robbers. In those hills, there were bandits. In those hills, you were worried about staying alive, and so you didn't sleep very good. And so there's the danger that you would go crazy. <laughs> lunacy. That's the word lunacy actually comes from the word lunar from moon. And if you've ever struggled to sleep at night, you know that it can drive you insane. It's not about comfort. You can have the right temperature. You could have the right bed. You could have everything just perfect. And how am I not sleeping? Because you've got those drunk monkeys jumping up and down in your head and you're wondering when they're going to stop. And it's driving you so mad that you can't help but to say, stop it! And that lunacy can lead you to look for help somewhere else. But here we see Yahweh is our keeper in those dangers. He is our shade. I want us to notice something about this as the psalmist writes, is that Yahweh doesn't take us out of our circumstances, but He provides a covering while we're in them. Yahweh doesn't take us out of our circumstances, but He keeps us while we're in them. A lot of times my prayers are, God, take me out of this trial. God, take me out of this situation. God, take me out of this struggle. But here the psalmist is saying, the Lord is our shade. He is our covering. He is the, 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 the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He is the one that guides us. Uh, Western Christianity, I think, struggles with the idea of this because we don't know some of the pains of ancient sufferings. We don't know many of the pains of third world sufferings in the world around us. But that the world is filled with suffering, the world is filled with pain, and in fact, for the Christian, it's not just non-Christians who go through suffering. You know, I've met Christians before who, who they seem surprised when they go through sufferings. Like, I accepted Christ. Why do I have to go through this? But it's through your sufferings that God shows you that He keeps you. And God shows the watching world not through an absence of suffering that Jesus is Lord, but right smack dab in the middle of it. I mean, we worship a crucified king. How much more should we show that our God is a God who doesn't take us out of trials or tribulations or suffering, but He provides a covering or a shade while we're in them? 
Think about some of the most famous hymns. There's a hymn called uh, My Savior Leads Me by a woman named Fanny Crosby. She says, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly place, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Fanny Crosby wrote that when she was blind. She says, he is my guide. Let me give you another one, Just As I Am by Charlotte Elliott. She says, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of mind, yes, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Charlotte Elliott wrote that when she was bedridden as an invalid, just as I am. Or maybe you've heard of this one, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's written by Horatio Spafford, whose wife and three daughters died in a shipwreck. These are people who are familiar with the language of suffering, but people who know that Yahweh is their keeper. Cross point. I pray that God schools us, not only in the language of suffering, but in the reality of it. That's a, you're like, don't pray that prayer. No, don't pray that prayer. Yes, because this world isn't final, and it's through our suffering that we see God's glory. Now, I'm not one that's just a glutton for punishment because none of us wants to pray for specific things to happen, but here's something that I'm not ignorant of, and I don't want you to be ignorant of yourselves. Suffering, trials, hazards are a part of the Christian life. You've got one right now, I guarantee you. Something right now is your suffering. Something right now is your affliction, is your trial, and is your hardship. And next month, it'll be something new. And you'll be like, why does this keep happening? How come I can't just get over things and life just be really easy and comfortable? And then there's going to be another thing and another thing. And what it reminds you, as I said it last week, is that, man, repentance is a grind. It is an uphill grind where Yahweh is your keeper. The next thing we see is he is our keeper when we need hope. When we need hope. It says the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Uh, now, there's a really powerful word in there and it's this. The Lord will keep you from all What's that word? Anybody? All. Can we all say it again? The Lord will keep us from all evil. All evil. No evil should befall upon the Christian. He will keep you from it all. Doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted by evil. 
It doesn't mean that evil's not going to come against you in some way. It means that he will ultimately and finally deliver you from all evil. And evil will not have the final say over your life. And this is where hope is. Hope. I know that in your life today, I know hope is on the horizon. I know it is. I know it is. Hope is on the horizon for you. And this isn't me telling you with some kind of self-help, pep-top encouragement language that you can do it, that you are strong, that you are mighty, that you are powerful. Bobby in his devotional says that he is my strength even when I have none. He is my strength. It's because Christ is your strength. It's because Christ is your hope. It's because Christ is your help. It's because Christ keeps you from evil. He is ensured that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Why? Because he is building it. He is building the church. And brick by brick, person by person, he is making and building his church. And the gates of hell, no evil shall prevail against it. 2 Corinthians 5-7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. By faith. By faith. I, I thought about this verse a little bit. I wonder how wa God walks. Does God walk by faith? No. He walks by sight. He can see everything. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen next year. He knows what's going to happen in the next hundred years. He knows exactly the end of everything. He's got it all worked out and he's in control of the whole thing. And it's because he knows everything that I could say. If he knows it, then I can have faith in him. So I could walk by faith because I know he sees what I cannot. He walks, I could walk by faith and not by sight like Fanny Crosby when she says that he is my guide. He is my guide. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 38 says, speaking of some of the prophets and those who have gone before us, and what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's a different life than the world tries to sell us, isn't it? A life that says, I'm going to wander about in the dens and the caves of the earth because if that's what God wants for me, that is the best. Better than anything else. Scripture says that 
These are men and women of whom this world is not worthy of. Listen, church, that we would not exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we would say, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul because he gives me hope no matter what. It says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You know, as I look back on my life, on the journey that I've had, turned 39 this year, I'm approaching 40 next September, and just letting you all know, so you can come with birthday presents and all that kind of stuff. We're going to have a party. Jonathan, you're going to take me to Texas Day, Brazil. Um, I'm just, that's a prophetic word for you. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Dolphins are going to win that day too. Um, so, uh, sorry, I'm in La La Land here. Where does my help come from? Um, <laughs> you know, I look past on my, on my journey and I say, you know, it wasn't easy. It hasn't been easy. It's been good. The future is bright. It's hard. The Lord has kept me. He's keeping me right now. And he will keep me forever. Right? So right now, maybe you're going through the loss of a career, loss of a future in some way that you thought was your future, and there's a word here for you, the Lord is your keeper, Yahweh is your keeper. Or, or maybe you got into a car accident and it caused you to, to go through a handicap or an ailment. And you wonder, was God asleep at the wheel? I mean, how did this happen? The Lord or Yahweh is your keeper. Maybe your finances are in a place where you, you think they're uncontrollable. And I just want to tell you that Yahweh is your keeper. Or maybe you, like me, in the last several years, or maybe it was even years and years ago, you lost a loved one and it just floored you. Yahweh is your keeper. When you're at the end of yourself, you have to realize that Yahweh is keeping your going out and your coming in. He says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Um, several years ago, Carrie and I hosted a, a Bible study in North Lake Park. It's a community in Lake Nona area, very close to the airport. And... Um, and uh, in this community group, there were several uh, uh, airline industry employees that were members. Uh, three in our community group were pilots. Um, so uh, one community group, we were talking about God's providence. And I asked the question, what is uh, in a way, a way that you've been amazed by God's providence in your life? And then one of the pilots very intuitive or, or, or introverted person, like a thinker, doesn't actually talk very much, but he says, you know, I'm amazed that more planes don't nosedive in the sand or the ocean than they do. I'm just amazed by that. And then the two other pilots that were there leaned in immediately are like, it is amazing that more planes don't nosedive in the sand or the ocean. And then another one of the community group members raised their hand and says, uh, 
I've got a business flight early tomorrow morning. Can we talk about this another time? And they continued to talk about all the ways of all the hazards when you're in the air in flying. And the biggest hazard, believe it or not, is that pilots would be sleeping. Really easy on a 12-hour flight for a pilot and a co-pilot to fall asleep. One dozes off, the other doesn't realize it, and while that's happening, they doze off. You know, you read the news story where like airlines pass their airport by like 5,000 miles. That's because two pilots are sleeping at the same time in a plane. Now, when you're on that plane, who's your keeper? It's the pilot. That's why you are trying to sleep on the plane because you think somebody else, the people, namely the people who are flying it, are awake. And I wonder sometimes if we think that God's asleep at the wheel. And so we're always trying to run the show. I wonder. I wonder if we really do believe that Yahweh is our keeper. And because we don't, we're trying to keep ourselves. Yahweh, the Lord, does not sleep nor slumber. He's not, he's not dozing off right now during the 2020 pandemic, the great pandemic of 2020. Where was God? Was he just sleeping and we were just flying past the airport? No. He's not asleep right now in your individual trials. He's not asleep right now in the collective trials that the church, is, the church faces in our world today. God knows exactly what he's doing. And he is directing the world it says in Hebrews that Jesus sustains the universe by the word of his power. He is upholding it with his pinky. That Jesus is ruling all things. And Rhett Dodson writes, The Lord will keep you in every way. And he will keep you every day. Including his eternal day. The horizon of these promises stretch out into eternity. One day you will go out for the last time. Hear that? One day you will go out for the last time. Even then, the Lord will keep you and bring you in to glory. Even then. The Lord is in control. Yahweh is your keeper. And how do I know? Earlier I said that Mount Zion is a pointer to Mount Calvary. Christ. His work. Yahweh keeps you. Because Christ is your keeper. I wonder who was keeping Christ on the cross that day. Who was his keeper? When he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we can be forever kept. And that's the beauty of the cross on Calvary, is that it shows us the lengths in which God entered into our world to keep us from all evil, all evil, even the evil of ourselves. And it shows us that forgiveness is free and final 
and forever because he keeps our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. One day you will go out and you won't come in again and God has kept that. And how has God kept that? He's kept that by the cross. I love the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the promise being spoken. But it's incomplete without the New Testament because the New Testament shows us that the promise has been kept. That Yahweh is in fact our keeper. And how does he keep us? Through Christ. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that Yahweh is our keeper. That you, Father God, are the mountain maker. And we worship you. And that Jesus, you are, you are the one who has saved us, rescued us, brought us into the fold. You are the one who left the 99 to go after the one, not because the 99 weren't kept, but to show us that you can keep all 100. And Lord, you are the one who right now keeps us through the hazards of life and gives us hope. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen.